0: Welcome to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended as a training tool for Children's Hospital and Medical Center personnel. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Complete information regarding the podcast, including its limitations on usage, is available under the episode description. I'm Dr. Laura Ortman, and welcome to Healing Hearts. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Children's Hospital Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the Blalock Thomas Tausig shunt. I've talked about BTT shunts in several of my previous episodes because they are useful for so many different lesions. But regardless of the heart disease, BTT shunts all have the same purpose, to provide adequate pulmonary blood flow. So let's talk about the history of the BTT shunt, what it is used for and what post-operative complications we need to watch for in the ICU. Let's get started. The BTT shunt represents the first attempt to surgically change the outcome of congenital heart disease. Dr. Helen Taussig was a pediatric cardiologist working at John Hopkins in the 1940s. When she was young, most medical schools did not admit women, and even as an undergrad, she could not sit with the men in class. She wanted to specialize in internal medicine, but very few positions were open to women. And so luckily for us and our patients, she ended up as a pediatrician. Dr. Tausig noted that patients with tetralogy of Fallot survived longer if the ductus arteriosus was still open. Blood flow to the lungs is limited in tetralogy due to pulmonary stenosis, and the natural history of tetralogy is worsening cyanosis and eventual death. An open ductus from the aorta to the pulmonary artery, in other words a PDA, continues to supply blood to the lungs, even with worsening right ventricular obstruction. Could this be replicated surgically? She approached surgeon researcher Dr. Alfred Blaylock with this idea. Dr. Blaylock had already done impactful research on treating trauma, and he was ready to take this challenge on. The task of developing a surgical PDA fell to Vivian Thomas, who was Dr. Blaylock's lab technician. Mr. Thomas labored for two years to create an animal model of pulmonary stenosis and develop a surgical bypass of this lesion. What came out of this work was the classical BTT shunt. In the classical BTT shunt, the subclavian artery is cut and the end is sewn to the pulmonary artery. Blood then flows from the artery to the lungs to be oxygenated, raising saturations. And despite cutting off the major blood supply to the arm, arm ischemia was rare due to collateral circulation. After proving that the surgery could safely be done on dogs, Mr. Thomas convinced Dr. Blalock to start operating on children. The first BTT shunt was done in 1944, and the patient lived for several months. The next patients did even better. I can't emphasize enough how groundbreaking this was. Operating on the heart had been taboo, and this was the first successful operation for congenital heart disease. It was still palliative. It didn't fix the heart lesion that caused the cyanosis, but it greatly improved the lifespan and the quality of life of these children. Now, I'm guessing that most of you are more accustomed to hearing the term BT shunt for blalock Taussig shunt rather than the term BTT shunt I'm using. When the first case series of this operation was published in 1945, Mr. Thomas's name was not mentioned, despite being the primary developer of the operation. Mr. Thomas was a black man in 1940s America. He was unable to afford to go to medical school, and in fact, the only job available at medical institutions to blacks was janitor. So that's what he was classified and paid as. He wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door and had to enter through the back. But he was a brilliant and skilled research surgeon, and we honor his contribution to congenital heart surgery by using the term BTT shunt. Mr. Thomas was awarded an honorary doctorate by Hopkins in 1976, and his official portrait was hung next to Dr. Blaylock's. That was a lot of history for this podcast, but the early days of cardiac surgery is fascinating, and we owe so much to these pioneers. Now let's get back to the medicine. The operation Mr. Thomas perfected is called the classical BTT shunt. And this isn't the operation that is performed today, which is the modified BTT shunt. And we no longer sacrifice the subclavian artery. Today's BTT shunts are typically made of Gore-Tex and attached to the right anominate artery and supply blood to the right pulmonary artery. Depending on the patient's anatomy, alternative shunt locations can be used and you may hear the terms central shunt, aortopulmonary shunt, or left BTT shunt. Most of what I'll discuss in this episode applies to any shunt from the systemic arterial to the pulmonary arterial circulation. Of note, a sano shunt is totally different, and what I'm talking about does not apply to sano's. BTT shunts are placed for multiple different heart lesions that all have one thing in common. They need a stable source of pulmonary blood flow. The indications for a shunt can be divided into two broad categories. Number one, heart anatomies with limited or no blood flow from the heart to the lungs. Examples of this include hearts with pulmonary atresia and hearts with severe pulmonary stenosis, such as cyanotic tetralogy of flow. In these cases, placement of the shunt may be the only operative procedure done, and this can be achieved without placing the patient on cardiopulmonary bypass. Number two, placement of the shunt as part of a single ventricle palliation. These patients typically have a good pulmonary artery supply and blood to the lungs preoperatively but the pulmonary artery is sacrificed to create a stable systemic outflow, such as in the Norwood procedure. Since the pulmonary artery is no longer flowing to the lungs, a BTT shunt is placed to take blood to the lungs to be oxygenated. This patient situation requires cardiopulmonary bypass. The risks and complications of shunt placement I'll discuss next apply to both indications. Regardless of the indication for the shunt, the potential complications are the same. So let's talk about the two big ones, shunt obstruction and pulmonary overcirculation. There are a lot of reasons for a patient with a BT shunt to have lower saturations than we expect. Look up the video, why is my cyanotic patient too blue on YouTube for discussion of those. We typically expect a patient with a shunt to have a saturation between 75 and 85%. Lower than this, and we have to worry that the shunt is not providing enough pulmonary blood flow. The shunt can be too small, have a clot in it, be kinked, or be compressed from something else in the chest. So how do we know if the shunt is the reason our patient is too blue? There are a couple of things that can clue you in. First, listen for the shunt murmur. A typical BTT shunt murmur is a continuous murmur heard best just under the right clavicle. But if the shunt has been placed in a different location due to the patient's vascular anatomy, the murmur may be on the left or even in the back. So it's important to know where your patient's shunt murmur is before something goes wrong. If you have had the opportunity to listen to your patient's murmur multiple times, you may notice a change in the volume or quality of the murmur as it becomes obstructed. If there's no murmur at all, and the patient's saturations are declining rapidly, the shunt may be completely blocked, and this is an emergency. Another clue that there may be partial obstruction is a chest x-ray. Children with heart disease frequently have at least mild pulmonary edema, and if there is a pulmonary cause of desaturation, you may see infiltrates or atelectasis on chest X-ray. If pulmonary blood flow is low, the lung fields will be dark instead. The most common cause of sudden and complete shunt obstruction is clot. A shunt can clot at any time, but the highest risk is in the first few days after surgery when the patient is inflamed, which increases the risk of thrombus. Potential other risk factors include small shunt size, high hematocrit, decreased cardiac output, and rapid platelet transfusion. Aspirin or other blood thinners are universally used to try and prevent shunt clots, but shunts can clot even with these medications. Echocardiogram is often the first test done to evaluate the shunt when obstruction is suspected, but we must be cautious in interpreting the results. An echo could tell us if there is flow through the shunt or not, but there are significant challenges in seeing partial obstruction. The gold standard for evaluating the shunt is angiography in the cardiac catheterization lab. So your patient is bluer than you want them to be, and you don't have a good explanation, seriously consider going to the cath lab, even if the echo tells you the shunt is fine. Complete obstruction of the BTT shunt is a medical emergency, and you won't have time for diagnostic tests. The saturations will fall rapidly. The patient's blood pressure will initially increase as more blood flows to the body rather than to the lungs but blood pressure will soon fall as the myocardium begins to be damaged by lack of oxygen. If the patient is intubated, end-tidal CO2 will also fall due to lack of blood flow to the lungs. It is recommended to give heparin bolus to the patient if shunt clot is suspected, but one of the first things that must be done is to call the surgeon, as they are highly likely to require opening of the chest or ECMO. A small shunt size is a risk for shunt occlusion. Why doesn't the surgeon just put in a bigger shunt? The typical shunt diameter for a newborn is 3.5 millimeters. A slightly larger or older baby may get a 4 millimeter shunt, and a toddler may get a 5 millimeter shunt. And bigger shunts are less likely to clot. But that brings us to our second major complication pulmonary overcirculation. Blood should flow through the shunt in both systole and diastole, as the systemic blood pressure should always be higher than the pulmonary blood pressure. The larger the shunt, the more blood will flow away from the body and towards the lungs. In a perfectly balanced system, the amount of blood flowing to the lungs would be equal to the amount of blood flowing to the body. We use the letter Q to denote flow. So the QP, pulmonary flow, to QS, systemic flow, ratio would be 1 to 1. A QP to QS ratio of 2 to 1 would mean twice as much blood flowing to the lungs as to the body. A QP to QS ratio of less than 1 means there's less flow to the lungs, such as in the case of shunt obstruction. So what happens when the QP to QS ratio is high? We call this pulmonary overcirculation, and this can cause several problems. First is decreased perfusion to the body, since more of the blood is going to the lungs. We see this complication most commonly soon after surgery, before the body has had time to compensate to the change in physiology. Signs include hypotension, tachycardia, Exam findings of poor perfusion and lactic acidosis, even if there are no signs of overt shock, chronically low systemic perfusion can cause difficulty feeding and gaining weight, necrotizing and renal insufficiency. The second problem with pulmonary overcirculation is pulmonary congestion. The increased blood flow to the lungs causes pulmonary edema, which can lead to tachypnea, respiratory distress, and trouble feeding. And third problem is congestive heart failure. One compensatory mechanism for lower systemic blood flow is to increase circulating blood volume. Since there is more blood volume, the systemic circulation can get more flow, even though the QP to QS ratio doesn't change. The single ventricle of the heart is already having to do the work of two. Increased blood volume means the ventricle is having to do even more work. The ventricle dilates due to volume overload, and poor function and signs of congested heart failure can develop. It's not uncommon for shunts to be a little bit big when they are first placed and for there to be mild pulmonary overcirculation. This makes sense because as the baby grows, the shunt doesn't, meaning the relative size of the shunt decreases over time and flow through it decreases. Babies grow rapidly, so putting a shunt in that is on the smaller side will mean a reoperation sooner due to cyanosis. So we need to know how to manage pulmonary overcirculation. If it is severe, this may mean an operation to revise the shunt. But there are things we can do in the ICU to change the QP to QS ratio before deciding a patient needs to go back to the OR. First, increase pulmonary vascular resistance. If they are still in the ventilator, you can use higher airway pressures or mild hypoventilation, which will cause pulmonary artery constriction. For all patients, limit how much supplemental oxygen they are on. Make sure they are on room air. Then we can try to lower systemic vascular resistance to encourage more blood flow to the body. Milrinone and niopride are the most common continuous infusions used for this purpose. ACE inhibitors for enteral medication. And lastly, nutrition. Get the baby to grow, because the faster they grow, the faster the relative shunt size and the pulmonary overcirculation will decrease. We are sometimes tempted to think, it's just a BT shunt because the operation is quick and doesn't require cardiopulmonary bypass if it is an isolated shunt. But that shunt can change physiology considerably, and these are high-risk patients. Thank you for listening. Next time, I'm going to talk about a different and much less common shunt, the reverse POTS shunt. See you then. For more information about Children's Hospital and Medical Center, visit childrensomaha.org. Thanks for listening to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers.